When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When Sweet Tarts dared to combine sweet and tart, they thought, why stop there? Why not create other exciting and unexpected combinations like rainbows and ropes or fruity and gummy or chewy and more chewy? That's why they created fun treats like Sweet Tarts Twisted Rainbow Ropes, Gummies Fruity Splits, and Chewy Fusions. When you dare to combine, it's sure to blow your mind. Sweet Tarts, dare to combine. Visit SweetTartsCandy.com to shop now. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain, Sierra says save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes, Sierra says save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery, well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! The NBA playoffs are here, and we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch, because this is the turn it up to 11 NBA playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. From BBC Science Focus, this is Instant Genius, a bite-sized masterclass in podcast form. I'm Daniel Bennett, the magazine's editor, and today I'm talking to psychologist Richard Wiseman about the science of lying. Richard is currently the Professor of the Public Understanding of Psychology at the University of Hertfordshire, and he spent his career studying human behaviour. He's published hundreds of studies and books on the psychology of magic, deception, luck, self-development, and more. Richard joins us today because he's actually launching his own podcast called On Your Mind. It's a show that aims to answer all your questions about psychology, from what makes some people seem so happy, to do lucky charms work, to why do some people seem to have so many questions. To kick things off, here's Richard explaining what drew him to study deception in the first place. Well, probably the same factor that got me interested in psychology, which was that I used to work as a magician. I've been into magic since about eight years old. And of course, magicians are superb psychologists. They have to understand where audiences place their attention, uh, what they remember about a performance. You've got to shape that memory and and so on. And some of the time, uh, shock horror, magicians are not telling you the truth. They're they're lying. And they call themselves the honest deceivers because they're doing it to entertain you, not to uh, for more exploitative reasons. But still, as a magician, you do get used to lying. So that was my kind of entry into both psychology and uh, psychology of lying. So having, you know, run experiments and, and studied this for, for a very long time, um, are, you, are you excellent at telling when someone's telling you a lie? Perhaps the students brought you a late paper and their, their dog's sick. Can you, are you able to spot when someone's telling the truth? I'm not especially good at it. And I think that's 
part of doing this research is that we all like to think we're really good lie detectors. But when you carry out this research, you are putting that to the test all the time. And that's when you realize that, oh my goodness, I'm not perhaps the great lie detector I thought I was. And that's because in those studies, you're getting feedback. You know, someone's telling you something and then you're going, hold on a second, was that a lie or the truth? When everyday life, that doesn't happen. So we go around convincing ourselves we're great lie detectors. You know, if, if you say to your partner, oh, actually, I, I, you know, we've had this lovely relationship for 25 years, they're unlikely to turn around and go, actually, I've been having an affair for most of that. You know, so you don't, <laughs> you don't get the, the, the feedback uh, as to whether you're correct or not. And so we, most of us convince ourselves we're great lie detectors, and most of us are not. In popular culture, particularly, and the sort of general, general conventional wisdom is that there are ways to spot a liar. Uh, and as you sort of just hinted there, it's not always that simple. But one of my favorite ones uh, that I think about often is that you're speaking and you're looking up and you're looking towards the top right, uh, that that is a good sort of tell that you are lying. Is, is that the case? Well, we've looked into that. It is one of the most popular myths out there. And so I know people that work for various organizations involved in HR, involved in hiring and firing. And they'll say, oh, we're interviewing this candidate. And their eyes shot up to the left. So I knew they weren't telling us the truth. I didn't offer them the job or whatever it was. So it's scary to think that, that people have got those ideas in their heads and they're really influencing yeah, the decision making. Yeah, I do it a lot. <laughs> well, there we are. Not, I'm terrified. people, but I look around. <laughs> oh, I see what you mean. Right, okay. I thought you Right, I'm with you now. Um, I do it as well. And, and in fact, part of that is that we're trying to cut down on often faces coming into our heads because faces take up a lot of processing power. And if you're trying to remember something or think about something, often you'll look away. From the person. But it's absolutely seen across the world as, as a sign of deception. Is it the case? Well, what we did was to take some students, we asked them to go into an office to pick up a wallet that was on the desk and either put it into the desk drawer or put it into their own pocket. Then they'd come out and they'd all try and convince us that they'd put it into the office drawer. So some of them were lying, some of them were telling the truth. And we looked at their eye movements in those interviews there's no indication at all that the eye movements relate to whether they're lying. So we then thought, oh, hold on a second, we're doing this in a lab environment, it's quite low stakes, or it's a sanctioned piece of deception, we told them to do one thing or another, what about the real world? And so we got hold of these tapes where often if there's a high-profile missing persons case, the police will ask members of the family to make a public plea. And in a small number of instances, those people were involved in abducting or uh, harming the person. And so we know, in retrospect, they were lying at certain parts of that uh, public appeal. So we could look at those. We looked at eye movements. Again, absolutely nothing. There isn't any evidence, as far as I'm aware, that eye movements tell you anything about lying. Yet people have that idea in their head. They're looking for up to the left, up to the right, and that's influencing their decisions. It's a good example of why we need psychology. That's great. That's that helps me shed that insecurity that people think I'm. Uh, well, they probably still will think I'm shifty, but at least I now have the, <laughs> the evidence to prove them wrong. But so, so that you know, that makes me wonder: are are there any tells that can help us identify when someone is telling us a lie? Obviously, there are you know poker tables that this might be useful at, but also you know criminal cases and investigations. You can see how that might be a useful thing to be able to do. Yeah, there are. And, and my work dates back to the early 90s. 
and in fact involves the, the BBC. So at the time, it was National Science Week. One week of the year, we put across to National Science Week. And Tomorrow's World was the big live science show. And the BBC wanted to put a big experiment on the, on the show. So they sent out this email to academics. And I was working on lying at the time. And I remember this email coming in. And I just spent maybe five minutes replying. And those five minutes really changed my life. So I just thought, oh, here's an experiment. We could get politicians from the major political parties. There were three parties at that point. And we could get them onto TV. They could lie and tell the truth. The public could then phone in and vote, which was the lie. And we'd find out which party has got the best liars. That was my fun idea. Sent it off. Two weeks later, get a phone call. Uh, you've, you're the chosen one. This is, this, is, this is the experiment we're going to do. So I was very excited. And we contacted lots and lots of politicians, said, will you come on the show and lie and tell the truth? And they all said, no, we're not going to do that. So I thought that was the end of that idea until the BBC got in contact with Sir Robin Day, who was this big political interviewer of uh, his time, hugely famous, and he agreed to do it. So I went along, I interviewed uh, Sir Robin Day twice, each time about his favourite film. Once he lied to me, once he told the truth, we put them out live on Tomorrow's World. I think it was the first science phone-in. We didn't know whether we were going to get like three or four calls. Uh, we ended up with about 30,000 calls. And what we saw was that uh, the public did the same on television as they do in the lab experiments, which is they were roughly 50-50, i.e. as a group, they couldn't tell when Sir Robin Day was lying. So that tells you something. It tells you that the, once you've got these visual cues, these auditory cues, you're not a very good lie detector. The other two parts of the experiment was that we ran the transcript only in the Daily Telegraph. Uh, that was with the help of Roger Highfield, who's a very good friend of mine, journalist, and now working at the Science Museum. Uh, so he put the transcripts into the Telegraph. We also put the audio out on Radio 1. And each time we said to the public, can you vote? And there, once we stripped away the visual cues, you suddenly saw this big increase in people's lie detecting ability. Oh, really? So I think, yeah, so I, th I think the newspaper, I'm going to get these percentages slightly wrong, but they came in at about 60%, radio came in at about 70%. So what it's telling you is that the visual cues, because there is a very highly controllable channel, as psychologists would say, whether we gesture, whether we smile, even where we look, that's under our control. We're used to controlling that. When you get to the words we say and how we say them, it's, it's not really something we think about very much. And that's where the good cues sit. Uh, and so once you direct people's attention to that, then actually you become a better lie detector. So in terms of, you know, guests appearing on radio or podcasts, actually, you know, if you're a politician and want to lie, get yourself on television and away from podcasts and radio. That's fascinating. Yeah, I just I don't know why, but you know, my instinct would have been to see you know to see them would have been helped me to decide if someone was lying. But yeah, uh, that, that, that that's right, and it's an, it's another myth we have that that uh, we need we need as much information as possible. Well, it turns out a lot of that information is quite unreliable. So it's an amazing experiment to do. Uh, it's also where I met Simon Singh, who went on to write Fermat's Last Theorem, science journalist. Uh, he was working on that show, so I met Simon. He's since become a very good friend. Uh, and so it became this sort of life-changing event for me because after that, every year they'd come back to me and ask me for new ideas, and I did many of them on uh, Tomorrow's World. And it all started with that five-minute 
quick reply of an email that I, it was just off the top of my head. So funny how these things work out. The NBA playoffs are here. And we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch. Because this is the turn it up to 11 NBA playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. And is that, is that a good lesson to take away then? Because when you were talking earlier, you know, it did remind you of there is an awful lot on social media and things like TikTok and YouTube where you get these sort of theorists analyzing whether it's politicians' videos or there's a criminal case and like say a family member is on there being interviewed and everyone suddenly becomes a body language expert overnight. Would you say it, our understanding of, of that is just far too woolly or almost there's, there's just no, re, you know, like say you can pr- practice your, outward behavior so you can you if you're really good at it you can hide anything well these people are doing this the question is can they do what they're claiming to be able to do that is can they detect lies it's one thing to look at a video and go oh look the person's just scratched their nose that's an indication of lying and you think well can you do it? if i if i were to show you pairs of videos the person's lying and telling the truth can you do, you do it? now some people can uh, but most people absolutely can't. So I, I'm not. I don't know why we're listening to these people that can't do the thing that that they claim to be able to do. The other thing is that what you tend to look for in lie detection work is a deviation away from the person's norm, as it were, the way they usually uh, behave. And so some people just scratch their noses a lot, or some people, like you were saying, tend to look away from other people. So. It, that's it's no use to look at one piece of action and go, hey, look, the person looked away from it. Or maybe they do that all the time. Maybe that's just their general style. So what you tend to do in lie detection work is establish a baseline, and then you're looking for certain signals away from that baseline. And those signals tend to be verbal. You're looking for them more hesitations. You're looking for bigger distancing between the end of the question and the beginning of the answer as they think through the lie. You're looking for a dropping away of detail. You're looking for a dropping of me, my, I, those sorts of of words. Because lying is cognitively difficult. You have to think through what's the person know, what's going to fit in with my story, what have I said already, and all those things tax the person's mind and you see some of the signals associated with cognitive difficulty which tend to be verbal signals but it's always a deviation away from baseline well that brings me quite nicely to my uh, next question is and again it's another another hollywood thing but it does does get pulled out in american court cases which is the lie detector what's our current thinking about their reliability do can we do they work and can people sort of fool them well, they, they work in the sense of they're very sophisticated pieces of equipment that tell you 
how physiologically active the person is. So they'll tell you how much they're sweating, very fine grain measure of that, their heart rate, breathing, and so on. So in that sense, they work. The question is, is that reliably linked to lying? And that's quite a contentious topic. And it, again, it will depend on the situation. Some truth tellers, not surprisingly, if you start putting all these monitors on them and you've got a big machine with lots of lights, they become a little bit nervous. Equally, some truth tellers who've told the story many times or don't feel guilty about lying are not going to show those signals. So from my own perspective is that they are not especially reliable. Again, they might give you some insight, but they certainly shouldn't be the sort of thing where we go, hey, look, they've failed the lie detector. That's 100% evidence they're, they're lying or they've passed it to so 100% there's truth-telling. So this debate has gone on for years about lie detectors. Uh, mostly they're not admissible evidence in court, and I'm quite comfortable about that. So what they are not is this kind of amazing magic bullet. And also, they're not very practical you know, the, the, in everyday life, if you're talking to somebody and then they say, oh, you know, uh, I had a great time with you last time I saw you. You can't say, hold on a second. Let's, let me just stop you there uh, because I need to attach you to this lie detector machine to find out what you really thought about last time you met up with me. So I, I, I'm not particularly impressed by them and uh, and they're not particularly practical. And you mentioned there you could kind of sort of get more practiced at being a, a kind of calm liar, I suppose. If if you're trying to fool, a, I suppose fool is a slightly contentious word, even when we're debating whether they are really telling if you're lying. But the point I'm getting at is some people can actually practice lying and become better at it and, you know, hide all those things that we're just, we've just been talking about that can kind of maybe hint that you might be uh, not telling the truth. Yeah. So if you think about it psychologically, there's the sort of arousal theory, the idea that when we lie to somebody, we feel guilty and therefore that you start to sweat and move around and do all the sorts of things that, that people who are physiologically active do. Well, okay. So first of all, do we feel guilty? Well, if you told this lie quite a few times or you don't really care very much about lying or you're lying for some greater good, or you're lying to make the other person feel good. And we should remember that lots of lies are in, in that category. You know, exploitative lies are only a very small part of lying. Most of the time, lying bonds us together. You meet somebody in the street and say, hey, it's great to see you. Maybe you don't feel that way. You know, society would fall apart if you met somebody and went, oh, I can't stand you. Uh, you know, <laughs> it's, it's, it's just, so, so lying bonds us together as much as pushes us apart. Um, and, and so, yeah, if, if you don't feel stressed when you lie, you're not going to show any of those signals. Equally, from a cognitive perspective, lying is cognitively difficult. If you've told that story many, many times and you're a well-rehearsed liar, well, you're not going to have those cognitive signals. In fact, you may even end up believing the lie yourself because you've told it so many times. So those sorts of things mean that, that, that those signals are not going to emerge with, with those types of people in those types of situations. And this is, I guess, where psychology becomes very helpful in that what starts off as a very simple question, you start to realize lying, like a lot of behaviors, is quite complicated and quite nuanced. And so that brings me to my next question, which is, uh, you mentioned sort of going up to people in the street, and I often wonder this, 
you know, a lot of, we've had a lot of sort of tumultuous politics that have had pollsters going around up and down the country going, which way are you going to vote on this subject or this, but what do you think of this politician? Do you like uh, the leader or the, 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 the competition? And, 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 the, and I do kind of wonder if this extends across a lot of these marketing surveys. Do, do we, or do we understand whether people actually tell the truth when a random person comes up to the industry and says, what do you think about X, Y, Z? Well, we do. And as a psychologist, I'm always deeply sceptical about how people say they'll respond or behave versus how they actually do. So years and years ago, we did a study with on a television show. We took over a supermarket and we, whenever people paid with £10, we gave them change for 20 And the first question was, how honest were people? And the answer was, everyone took the money. Never said a thing. So then we said oh, to the, the cashier, can you count the money back into the hand? Just to, to absolutely make it clear, you know, 10s, 20, that they, they really have got. Did that, no one owned up. Then we said, can you ask, can you say to the person, sorry, did you give me 10 or 20 pounds? Under those circumstances, most people, not everyone, most people said I gave you 20. So there's a lot of dishonesty out there in that particular context. What made it fun was when they left the supermarket, out in the street was a apparently a, um, a researcher, market researcher, and they said, can I ask you some questions? Yes, of course you can. Various questions about various things. And then one of the questions was, if you'd been given too much change in a shop, would you own up to it? And we had all this footage of people going, I absolutely would, yes. And we, and we, and we know they'd just taken the, the money about 10 minutes before. So, you know, whenever we talk to somebody, we're self-presenting. We're we're telling that other person what we want them to think about us. And it's the same when it comes to polls or to market research or whatever. And so if there are certain political candidates who are not, it's not, it wouldn't be good to be seen to support them. I'm sure you go, oh, no, I'm not going to vote for them. And secretly you're thinking, absolutely will. And so often you've seen these pollsters be wrong. The person I thought was fascinating about this was Stanley Milgram, psychologist, uh, who did the famous shock experiment, if people want to, to read about it. It's actually not my favorite Milgram experiment. It's the one he's most famous for. But he did some other stuff um, with wallet dropping and envelope dropping, where he'd take envelopes that were uh, addressed to one political party or another, and he might take 200 of them. He'd go into a certain area of town and drop them, and they were stamped addressed envelopes. And the question was, was that a better measure of people's political beliefs? Because you'd pick up an envelope, and if it was addressed to a political party you supported, his idea was you go and drop it into a letterbox. Where if it's addressed to one you didn't support, you put it into the rubbish bin. And there, what he found out was that was a much more reliable way of finding out how that area would vote. Because it's behaviour, it's unobtrusive behaviour, versus asking people where suddenly all that self-presentation comes into play. And so as a psychologist, I'm, I'm always pushing students uh, to, to look at how people behave versus how they'll say they'll behave because they'll tell you any old thing um, in order to make <laughs> themselves look good. Yeah, maybe that's how we should do our... I mean, that would mean an awful lot of wallets, but you know, the next political decision we have to vote on, we could uh, yes. employ a slightly different method. 
Well, yeah. I mean, anything that's, that's about behavior would be would be good. I actually, I've done some of those wallet dropping studies, not on the scale that Milgram did, but they are quite difficult to do. So I looked at the best thing to put into your wallet in order or purse in order to get it, uh, increase the likelihood of getting it returned. And so we drop wallets uh, with pictures of babies, mature couples, charity cards, uh, all sorts of things in. And the answer was a picture of a baby. If you put a picture of a baby in there, it increases the chances of getting your wallet returned. But they're quite fun studies to do because you drop your wallet. It's quite hard to drop your wallet because you walk away within seconds, someone's tapping you on the shoulder and going, you just drop your wallet. And you go, look, put it back. This is science. And it's so it's it's a tricky one to do, but but fun. You know, you get out there in the real world. I've I've often thought that about briefcase drops in movies. They make it look so easy, but I feel like if I just let my briefcase, there'd be about three people around me going, excuse me, what are you? Yeah, if you did it on the tube or something like that. You'd... No, that, that's right. I think you'd run into a few other issues there on the on the tube. But yeah, no, any of these things in in the real world are, are surprisingly hard to do. Or well, yeah, but they're fun. You know, I'm a social psychologist, so I used to get out there and do that that kind of stuff. My favorite, my first ever psychology experiment was at Euston Station. I just stood there, and when one person got off a train and were met by, say, their partner. And they they embraced, and the two of them were clearly very happy. I used to go up to them and say, "Excuse me, would you mind taking part in a psychology experiment? Can you tell me how long it's been since I just said excuse me?" And I'd have a stopwatch in my pocket so I knew the actual time. And they, what we found was that their estimation of the time, because they were happy, was it was much much shorter, because they their good mood shortens time. And that was my first ever psychology experiment. It was many many years ago. And it, you know, it, as someone who studied psychology, that that is the that that is the big crux of the, all these. You see all these lab surveys, and students basically go into a room and fill in a questionnaire, and then something's published, and you you look at them and think, well, is that really how we? When it comes down to brass hats, do we behave like that? Yeah, yeah, it's a huge problem, and and more and more psychology is moving online because they're, they're quite straightforward studies to do, and so it's actually now quite rare to read about a study where someone's gone out into the real world and 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 actually done something involving behaviour. When you look back, I did a book called Quickology, second book I did years ago, and that was all about unobtrusive behaviour. You know, actually measure, and it was quite easy then to find those studies. Much, much harder now. It's certainly even with COVID, you would think, you know, figuring out how people actually behave in certain measures could there could have been opportunities in those two years of lockdowns to maybe see, you know, how do people respond to these? Yeah, I mean, sometimes they look at sort of mass numbers, and and so you'll look at number of people with vaccine uptake or something like that. But but in terms of really getting out there and looking one on one, it's it's a rarer thing to do. Um, which is a pity because that's that's often where the fun is. I'm definitely going to change my. I have a, my dog as my phone home screen, but it's going to be my niece now, just in case. I I, I, that's that's a very important change. Yes, uh, we did have a puppy, and that did quite well. Not a real puppy in the wallet, obviously. That'd be hard to get through ethics, uh, but a, a, a picture of a puppy and did fairly well. So you, you'll be okay with the dog. But yeah, a, a baby is is always good. So I haven't got any kids, but I've got a picture of a baby. Uh, in, in my wallet. I've actually no idea who the baby, I can't even remember now where I got that picture from. So uh, yeah, I've been carrying that around for years. Yeah, someone goes and looks it up and this like, this is the first re- result on Google Images. What the f- <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's um, a strange man. Yes. <laughs> what a strange man. Just a couple last questions then. And one, it says a little bit about the sort of hate my age and the stage of life that I'm at, that I have a lot of friends wondering 
about whether they should lie or not to their children. And it's quite interesting because there's there's one who, in a book I read recently, there's a really fun, fun example of um, a dad taking his kid to Disney World. And, and as you get to the, the entrance, they say, you know, kids under three go free. And if you're over f- th- three, it's 150 pounds. Is your child over three? And, and he says, well, he's almost three, full well knowing he's about three months older than three. <laughs> so he's, he's, it's a sort no, of. Knowing he's 16, truth. yes. <laughs> so, yeah, no, he's, 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 uh, he's just shaved him. But yeah. Knowing he's uh, telling a sort of partial truth, and his son sort of goes when he gets through. Thankfully, waits, waits. He's a good, good enough to know that I wait till we're through the gate. He says, "What you told a lie, Dad? What was what was that about?" So, so you sort of hinted earlier that lies can be quite useful. And is it is it is it a bit silly to be worrying about whether we lie to our kids? And 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 is there anything to say that that's teaching them a bad behaviour to? So, you know, do as I say, not as I do. Yes, I think it's all nuanced, isn't it? What's great about that is, of course, they're going to Disneyland. And so once you get in there, you're just lying to the kid about everything. It's like, let's go and see Mickey Mouse. (laughs) And then there's a a wonderful castle. Uh, So I I think it does put it into focus, is that what we want is kids to lie some of the time. You know, when it's their birthday and someone's come over and given them a present, it's terrible if the kid takes off the wrapping paper and goes, yeah, this is the worst present I've ever had. I didn't want this. Well, well I made it quite clear. This is the last thing I wanted. We don't want that. But so we want them to lie under those circumstances. But other times we want them to tell us the truth. And that's because lying isn't, like most bits of complex behavior, it's not one thing. It's many things. It depends on the situation. So what we have to tell kids is the the truth in that sense, which is that sometimes it's all right to lie and sometimes it isn't. And it it depends very much on the, the, the situation. For example, are you lying to make somebody feel good? in which case it's probably all right to tell that that lie. Are you lying for your own benefit? And if the person found out you were lying, they'd be furious. Well, in which case, actually, it's probably not all right to lie there. So I don't think we should get too het up about it. It's a problem that's been around for a long time, and, and we've survived up until this point. I just think it's a question of being honest about what lying is. And, and as I say, sometimes it's okay, and sometimes it's not okay. So, Rich, you've got this new podcast. I'd love to know. I, I'd actually thought for a, for a very long time, having read um, quite a few of your books, that you know, how come Rich hasn't got a podcast yet? I think it would be a, a brilliant thing. So, what what drew you to it, and what can listeners expect um, when they head over? Yeah, it's called Richard Wiseman's On Your Mind, and it's my good self and science journalist, Marley Chesterton. And each week we talk about a different topic. So it might be lying or ghosts, um, might be happiness, uh, motivation, persuasion, anything where there's kind of take-home messages. And I think what drew me to it is after I've, I think I've done sort of 14 or or 15 books, and it's nice to take all of that information and put it in podcasty form and just to sit there and chat about it. And because podcasts have been it very popular. So yeah, very excited, nice thing to do, uh, mainly for me. Unfortunately, Marnie has to to spend time with me, so it's not quite so much fun uh, for her, uh, but she does it very well. And it's it's just been lovely. And we're, we're, the, we're on a quest uh, originally to answer a thousand questions uh, about the human mind. 
and then we did the first episode and realized we only got through two questions. And so we've, we've set the bar pretty high. And as most things in life, I think the easiest solution is to bring that bar down. So I haven't told the team yet, but I think we're going to be on a quest to answer 70 questions tops uh, in, the, in the podcast rather than the initial thousand. Uh, so, yeah, it's been, it's been lots of fun. And you've got um, you've got people asking you questions. They they send them in. You've got um, I heard Rob Rinder, uh, celeb judge Rob Rinder, on there. Um, can, can people fire in their questions about the mind and the brain? Absolutely, to, and we do need them. their questions. We've we've now realised we need quite a lot of them. Uh, so on Twitter, they can send in their their questions, uh, and sometimes it's audio. Sometimes we just read them out. Uh, we ask questions to each other. Sometimes they're celeb questions. Uh, we have Joss Stone, as a wonderful singer, uh, coming up with a question a bit later on. Um, so yes, it's we, we need questions uh, because it was my idea, like an idiot, to answer a thousand of them and we are we are in desperate need of questions um, for the, the podcast so any questions you've got about the human mind let us know that was professor richard wiseman then discussing the science of lying if you'd like to hear more from richard check out his new podcast on your mind which is available on your preferred podcast platform thank you for listening the instant genius podcast is brought to you by the team behind bbc science focus magazine which you can find on sale now in supermarkets and news agents as well as on your preferred app store alternatively do come find us online sciencefocus.com 